This is Dave Gans, Senior Fellow the Medical Group Management Association. I have the opportunity today to talk with Timothy Smith, CPA AMV. He's the principal of TS Healthcare Consulting and located near Dallas, Texas. I've had the opportunity to meet Tim on several occasions and also to discuss with him the issues associated with hospital systems and why these hospital systems have an operating loss on their books. So today we're going to talk about more of what is occurring in these healthcare systems, why they may be showing an operational loss, and is this loss real or are there other alternative opportunities that are occurring in the health system that are creating revenue for the health system but don't show on the, on the practice's books. I think we're going to have a good discussion today. Uh, Tim, will you introduce yourself and give us some of your background and also talk about what some of your current projects are? Sure. Dave, it's great to be with you today. I'm excited for our conversation. You and I have had some sidebars at some of the conferences. You know, my background, I've been for, in healthcare now for 25 years. Um, I was a physician practice acquisition and divestiture analyst. Um, and then I became an actual developer, which was, as I like to say, it's really undevelopment because I started doing that in the early 2000s when HCA, along with most of the industry, was selling off all the practices they had acquired in the go-go 90s. Um, and then I got into um, the area of compliance and valuation when I was at HCA. Well, HCA was under a CIA with the federal government. And that really got me into valuation review um, and I had had some experience in reviewing valuations in the 1990s and, and 2000s and acquiring physicians. But I got into the area of physician comp in kind of the mid-2000s. Uh, enjoyed it so much, I ended up leaving HCA to go to work in the valuation community, becoming a professional business appraiser and specializing in the area of physician compensation. Uh, and I do... Uh, traditional business valuation, evaluating more than just physician groups. I do all kinds of provider entities, uh, such as dialysis centers, surgery centers, and the like, uh, and also doing physician practices and physician comp uh, in its various forms. Um, I guess the other thing I'd point out, I do a lot of thought leadership. I am the co-editor and a, a major contributor to uh, what I would consider the to be the industry's leading textbook on valuing physician compensation, the BBR HLA Guide to Valuing Physician Compensation and Healthcare uh, Service Arrangements. And it's a 1,400-page, two-volume tome all about valuing physician compensation. Uh, and there's a lot of articles in there that um, I've written, including a, a chapter in there, I should say, about uh, practice losses and the regulatory implications of uh, incurring losses on your practices. So in my practice now, I do valuation work. I also do consulting work uh, with groups related to physician compensation in various forms. So that's a little bit about my background. I also should mention, I guess, is that I back in the uh, winter and early spring of this year, uh, this year of uh, 2018, I published a series of articles uh, about practice losses for MGMA, which are all posted online. It was those articles that you wrote that caught my eye and realized that, you know, uh, I've written uh, for a column in the MGMA Connection, the data mine, for 20 years. 
looking at applications of the financial and productivity data from our surveys, and some of those articles also addressed hospital losses uh, and why hospital-owned groups lose money, or at least apparently do. Uh, and then when I read your article, I said, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, good. you and I have some similar data studies, Dave. Yeah. You know, I think there's a 2011 article you published yeah. looking at differences really in whether the ancillaries are included mm -hmm. in the practices yeah. in the MGMA data or not. Yes. In fact, that's, yeah, I, that's going to be one of the things we'll talk ahead. about. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's that a hospital-owned system is different, and the why they are different shows in their financial information. So I'm going, to, mm -hmm. I'm going to throw some numbers out for our listeners that gives us background. Okay, I'm looking at MGMA's Data Dive, the 2018 report for revenue and cost, but I've looked at this over years. In fact, I actually have some data from tw three years ago, 2015, in front of me, and it looks the same. First off, I'm going to give you just a couple of numbers, just for perspective, that what we see in a physician-owned groups, multi-specialty groups with primary and specialty care, that total medical revenue per doctor in the physician-owned groups is a little over $1,200,000. It's only 600000 in the hospital-owned groups. So the first thing we realize is that hospital-owned systems only have half the revenue. Operating costs are also about $800,000 for physician-owned groups and $400,000 for hospital-owned groups. So again, their, re their, their revenue is half, their costs are half. More importantly, revenue after operating cost in the physician-owned groups is about a half million dollars. It's only $252,000. However, in the physician compensation and benefit cost in both practices is about the same, about $435,000 for physician-owned groups, $400,000 for hospital-owned groups. So the end result is if you have half the revenue and even if you have half the cost, because you pay your doctors the same because it's a competitive market wage for the specialty they have, physician-owned groups essentially break even. They have in the survey, a accounting paucity of about $6,000 per doctor, but even though in most practices, and I want you to talk a little bit about what happens in private practice as well as hospitals, this is a, this is a balancing fact. It's a, all, all income is distributed to the doctors as personal income. Hospital and groups lo report a loss of $201,000. So they're losing money, but I think the, just looking at the data, the first thing we see is that these hospital groups are different. And it's the why behind the difference is what leads to the, to, the, to the income loss. So, Tim, based on your overall experience, general comments on this general operating loss, and then let's dive into some of the revenue reasons. Get, give us your insights. You know, I will tell you, and if you read through the article series, I will tell you, first of all, I think there can be multiple causes of losses in a, in a hospital-owned physician practice. So I don't know that we're, uh, for example, my opinion is it's not just a singular phenomenon that causes these losses. I think there are multiple contributors. Secondly, I think you have to look at each health system and each practice in each health system that there is not a universal answer. Different factors can give rise to this. And I, I know, for example, in, in, you know, there are physician practices 
where the ancillaries haven't necessarily been converted out, for example. I'm a big believer that the first step in this for a health system is not to engage in theoretical discussion of the matter, but in fact to dive in and start digging into the numbers themselves for their system to figure out why they're losing money. Multiple factors can cause this. And just to just to kind of list some of those, Dave. Yeah. Let's um, let, okay. Let's let, on, let's oh, list one. You list the first one. And let's talk about it. The the first one I think we can talk about is the issue of the ancillaries and whether for certain specialties that are very ancillary dependent, meaning things like cardiology, for example, with all the various kinds of diagnostic testing. You can think about diagnostic testing that goes along with orthopedic surgery or or physical therapy that is often attached to orthopedic practices when when they're privately held. These are all typically, or frequently, I shouldn't say always, because I I know as a fact they're not always, um, but they are often converted from being part of the practice to being a hospital outpatient department because the hospitals can bill at a higher rate for those services, which I'm sure we can have a long discussion (laughs) about that. Yeah, Yeah, we talk about equitable. Yeah, is that equitable? I I will tell you. Yeah, I was going to say, equitability is one thing, but I think they've also heard there are some other reasons as far as economies of scale, being able to provide the same service at a lower cost, and also because of, you know, getting it, basically consolidating their imaging, they uh, allow their cross-training of their employees, and the other element is oftentimes there's a quality control issue, that when you concentrate your imaging or your laboratory, that you can actually improve quality. So I've heard that argument but there's definitely an issue here when you see the transfer of revenue. And actually, again, the data dive, if, if you get into one of their activity reports in the uh, data dive pro, I actually have data in front of me that shows practices that are physician owned, gross charges. Now gross charges are not revenue, but they do have a strong correlation that a lab charges per doctor of about $318,000 in physician owned groups compared to $20,000 in the hospital system. Radiology charges of 214000 compared to 27000 Well, not that the doctors in the hospital systems weren't ordering the labs or ordering the radiology, but they weren't being done in the practice. And we actually see the data. Right. Yes. <laughs> you, can, you know, it's interesting, Dave. I'm looking at a 2012 slide deck that I did for the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants Healthcare Industry Conference where I presented data similar to yours where when we look at many of the productivity metrics for the multi-specialty groups in what used to be called the cost survey, it's yeah. now the cost and um, the revenue yeah, data, yeah, yeah. I believe, <laughs> and, and data dive, there was this huge difference in, let's say, work RVUs yeah. may not have been dissimilar, but the total RVUs yes. were significantly different. And that would be that would point to, for example, various types of procedures that are paid through RBRBS and lab and things like that are not paid through RBRBS, for example, but a lot of the ancillary diagnostic tests are, mm-hmm. that would account for those differences. Yeah. Well, um, and, you know, it makes sense from the hospital's perspective. They're like, we can essentially do the same service, but get reimbursed at a higher yeah, rate. higher rate and lower so cost. Yeah. And, yeah. and better quality. So there's a good reason why, these, why, you're, why you're moving your ancillaries. I think you pointed out something else important. Total RVUs are less, even though work RVUs are similar. 
there's a reason behind that, and it has to do with the Medicare fee schedule. That in a private practice where the doctors are doing the billing, they've paid under the physician fee schedule for Medicare, and other insurers use this as the same basis, but they're paid under the non-facility fee schedule. If you're part of a hospital system and you're doing provider-based billing, and uh, which means that their hospital's charging a separate facility fee, our Medicare reduces the total RVU commensurate with amount that's going to be billed for the facility fee. Even though work RVUs are the same, you get less total RVUs if you're part of a hospital system, and therefore less payment from Medicare and less payment from other commercial insurers for the same amount of work. Well, what it is, Dave, is the P, what's called a practice expense RPE RVUs yeah. under the facility side of service are lower than the non-facility set of service. And what that is, is that Medicare is recognizing that when you do provider-based billing, they're going to get a bill for the facility and then for the, the physician professional side. And so for any given type of diagnostic test, let's say a nuclear camera study of the heart, all of the PE or practice expense RVUs that would have paid for the overhead costs associated with the camera and the tech and the space and all of that is, is no longer paid to the practice, but is paid, you know, reimbursed to the health system through when they, they drop a facility bill under the outpatient prospective payment system. So that accounts for that difference. Exactly what you said, just bringing it into more detail and saying that these practice expense RVUs are lower under the facility billing as the facility site of service. Yeah, this impacts that practice in the bottom line because it starts at the top line, <laughs> getting paid less for right. the same amount of work. Right. Yeah, but that also says why your expenses can be, you know, you still have, have incur those costs. They, the costs should be incurred and accounted for mm -hmm. in the practice, at least for the ancillaries, yeah. right? Because in order to meet the provider-based billing mm -hmm. regs, you've got to have a lot of those resources under the hospitals. Under uh, their responsibility. ID, but it's yeah. Be built yeah, yeah, their financial responsibility to pay for. But the, the thing, I think the real equation factor that, that creates the loss, if you will, is that as you pointed out, the physician compensation is the same. Part of the challenge here, there, there is a, regula a potential regulatory issue here, and this is for lawyers to comment on, not me, and that is you're essentially, what, what hospitals are doing is they're, they're continuing to pay the physicians as if the ancillaries were being provided in the group. And the challenge there is that under Stark, in order for physicians to be able to receive compensation off of net profits from ancillaries, they have to meet the in-office ancillary exception under Stark, and they have to meet the group practice definition, which covers how, <laughs> among other things, how those ancillary dollars can be divided up among the physicians. The challenge is they're not, when ancillaries are stripped out under HOPD, do they meet those requirements? And is it fair market value to continue to pay for ancillaries that don't meet those requirements? And that's, that's a legal regulatory issue, but the economics are simply this, what the physicians used to receive as really kind of profits from being owners in their business, those, those revenue streams and profits are over in the hospital side now, 
but the doctors are still getting distributions or getting paid off of that. And it, it raises it a, a, I think, a fundamental question that a lot of doctors don't understand. I don't think a lot of hospitals understand, which is that when you pay physicians, when they're in private practice, and I would say that the survey data reflect this, their total compensation is based off of both the professional services that they personally perform, but historically, when majority of physicians owned their practices and were you know, owners in their practices, they got ownership distributions from the overall practice. And the question here becomes, how do you view these ancillary profits? One point of view is, well, well first of all, let's realize that physicians don't actually perform those services generally. T typically, those ancillaries are performed by techs or other people like a physical therapist, let's say. The physician's not personally performing those services. So it's a separate part of the business that generates profits, but it's the physician that refers that test or, or other type of ancillary from which the physician can receive a profit. So first question is, is that a profit from owning a business? Is that really physician compensation? Now you can get some differing opinions on that. Uh, yeah, I think you know, we, the next. Yeah, I think stop. that would that would be an interesting discussion because I agree a hundred percent that in a private practice everything is fungible. You know, in other words, you can you know whether the revenue comes from an ancillary or from the doctor's direct work, or perhaps from a you know the the uh, infusion of of a chemotherapy drug. That those are all fungible and put into the bottom line and distributed according to some formula. However, in the hospital, as you just described, you're paying a market salary. And the market is determined <laughs> on the compensation of doctors who are having these other revenue streams. Well, and it's interesting that the, the business world, the business valuation world, has been dealing with this issue for years. Um, we have a tool called the Independent Investor Test which was created really by the valuation community in the context of C-Corp taxing, looking at you know how much when you have employees who are also owners of their business and trying to differentiate between what's the value of the services they provide to their company as employees versus what is really the profits that they're getting off the business. We actually have a lot of tools to do that. Uh, a new tool that's been developed is using RBRVS to tell you this because RBRVS already has baked into it. Here's how much you pay for it. For every procedure, here's how much you pay the doctor in terms of compensation and benefits. Here's how much you pay for the overhead and the non-professional part of it, meaning the PERVUs and the MPRVUs. And that ratio already do, does the work for you. Mm -hmm. And you can apply that ratio to all of your collections for all of your payers because most of the payers are basing their payments off of Medicare. Mm -hmm. You know, let me, I'll give you a real life example of this is someone uh, years ago has asked to value a physician uh, to come on board as an employee of a health system. Well, this physician was making a lot of money. Uh, per year, he was really off the scale, but when you broke into his comp, or you kind of get delve into what he, he was making, third of his income came from ownership in various labs and other types of ancillaries. Um, his professional services were only accounting for about a third or two thirds of what he was mm -hmm. doing. But the challenge was, you know, you're paying for him to do professional services. 
you're not paying for him to be an investor in a business. And I think health systems get confused about they just think I got to make this doctor whole and doctors think this way too. Well, I make X amount for my practice. Therefore it's all what I make for doing doctor stuff. Well, actually some of what you make is from doing doctor stuff. Some of what you make is, is from being a business owner, mm-hmm. from being an entrepreneur. Cardiology practices, for example, those guys had to, those people I should say, um, have had to invest. Those physicians have had to invest sometimes millions of dollars in equipment and facilities and the like in order to build out those ancillaries. And so the money they're getting off of that, I think one has to look at that as a business, you know, profits from the business rather than just, oh, this is what I'm being paid for what I do to see patients. But that's not the this one comment. That's not to say that you can't come up with profit sharing plans. I mean, lots of companies have profit sharing plans in the companies of the business. But you don't hear, I don't hear doctors and I don't hear health systems making these distinctions. And I think that's part of the problem is people have got money in one bucket when the bucket, the, the money needs to be put in a few different buckets. Yeah. Well, let's, let's focus back on some of the re- other things on revenue because so far we addressed how you've got a, a different level of payment for the same work. Uh, that also that you've removed some of the ancillary services. Uh, looking again at the data, I can also see that there is a difference in the amount that the practice actually collects of its billed charges and its payer mix. Uh, one of the things I'm again looking at the data from the survey is that if you're part of a hospital system, even though you're the physician services portion, you, t- you have a similar payer mix as the hospital in general. And I see that looking at the data, for, for example, the percentage of Medicaid. In a private practice, it's about 6% per year of their total revenue is Medicaid. In a hospital system, it's 14%. So you have twice the percentage of patients who are being paid at the lowest governmental rate. Okay? Whereas in a private practice, you know, that other 8% of the patients, it's going to be replaced by commercial insurance consequently getting paid more for the same service. And there's another element I can look at at the data that says, what's the adjusted collection percentage? In other words, of the bill charge, what do you present? What do you collect? In private practice, physician-owned groups, it's 98%. Hospital systems, 96.7. So they're getting paid about 1% less. Well, 1% times hundreds of thousands of dollars equates to a sizable amount of this operating loss. So You've got poor payer mix, so you're getting paid less for the same work because you're getting Medicaid patients, not commercial insurance, or and also that even when you bill for the services because of certain other reasons, which I'm going to ask you to if, if you have your insights, why would a hospital system be, be collecting less than a private practice? I've got my ideas. What do you think? Sure. Well, <laughs> let's go back and talk about the payer mix issue. Yeah. What I will tell you is, I believe payer mix always has to be analyzed relative to the local market because it's population demographics and the local market that drive payer mix. Um, also, obviously, the specialty of, is, is affected by the payer mix. I mean, obviously, cardiology tends to affect older folks, and therefore, you see a higher percent of Medicare. Um, if you look at a pediatrician, they're going to have, you know, for them to get children, there's a lot of, a lot of the volume out there may be Medicaid patients. 
And so you may see a lot more Medicaid there than you might in other places. But that's a one of the things that I, and this is where I say you have to look at the facts and circumstances. You can't make global statements and generalizations when you look at this issue, in my opinion, because demographics are different. If you take, like take, I'll take Dallas-Fort Worth where I live. There are certain suburbs where you're going to have a great payer mix. And if you pop a facility in those and a practice in those areas, you're going to have a great payer mix. You put them in other parts of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you're going to get a different payer mix. And so, you know, a, a health system that's losing money in one of these affluent suburbs, I don't think can, can make the claim that they've got a payer mix problem. Now, unless they're somehow they're shipping in Medicaid patients and self-pay patients from somewhere. You have to look at that locally. Some communities, for example, Florida and Arizona, just have high degree uh, or high levels of, of senior citizens in retirement. So you may see a higher level of Medicare in those practices mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that that's your patient base. So I think that there, there is no one-size-fits-all generality on that. You have to look at the local market. And the second thing I would say on, on that related point is that's something that can be quantified. And I will tell you, Dave, I'm a big believer that any health system that wants to understand its practice losses needs to be able to quantify mm-hmm. most of these factors. If they can't run numbers and calculate yep. it, um, what good is it done to simply to simply throw out a bunch of yep. theoretical reasons yep. and say, no, that's talking in platitudes? Yeah, I think you're, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you you know, you really have to work the numbers. At, at that individual uh, institution so that they have what is their right. payer mix specifically uh, what is their collection percentages you know because I, I think another right. element that I've always felt is that there's an entrepreneurial component of private practice that if you are working in the business in the business office of a doctor owned practice uh, those doctors have a little more incentive to work a little harder, maybe produce a little more. You as, and they own the business of the, of the practice, and when they interact with the billing staff, they're much more apt to focus on collections. What can they do to assist in collecting those bills? How do they focus on the patient to make sure the patient's aware of the payment policy, for example? So there's an entrepreneurial right. component that you don't have if you're part of an institution, at least not in many institutions. There are some who have translated that culture of a private practice into their hospital system, and has been they've been usually among the more successful practices. Health systems are notorious for being really bad at billing collecting. I mean, yeah. even, even just not doing a good job of billing and their collections. You know, a lot of people have told me, Dave, I don't know what your experience has been, that pulling the billing and collecting people out of the practice actually hurts the collections in the practice um, because they they lose something in terms of communicating over what the billing should be. Yeah. They can't just grab the doctor in the hallway and say, hey, wait, yeah. you know, so-and-so rejected this claim. Let's talk about it. Yeah. To even just better practices of collecting at, at the check-in window, for example. Yeah. I've heard people talk about that, that centralized MSOs, where you pull all of that into some central location that depending on the organization can be, you know, hundreds of miles away, um, you lose something uh, of that. So, um, you know, a lot of health systems too, to be candid, it seemed like they, uh, I've heard this over the years and this may be dated, uh, but 
You know, I've heard people say that the hospital operators say, well, you know, we do DRGs and complicated billing. Physician billing should be shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, and they they don't often put the adequate resources that are necessary to you know build out their physician well, billing. They're, they're uh, and you're right. I, yeah, there's a short term focus, not necessarily what's best for the organization long term. And if you're a physician and it's your organization, you'll make that investment. That's right. That's right. Well, and that you know it's interesting you bring up that entrepreneurial aspect. Um, you know, physicians, when they own their own practices, they've typically got a lot of money invested in that business. I mean, they've, they've given their own, typically they have, they're, they're borrowing capital and paying interest or they're putting their personal capital in. Uh, and that, that matters to how they, they do the business. I, I would also say, Dave, kind of moving on to another issue, there is the question of how hard do the hospitals negotiate for good commercial payer rates for their doctors? The think tank literature that's all out there on commercial payer rates will tell you that that you know what drives those is really this dynamic between the relative bargaining power of the of the providers in the community, which could be physician groups or, or health systems or whoever, the payers and the employers, because most health insurance is paid through self-insured large companies, uh, and ultimately those employers are paying the bill for those insurance premiums. So depending on the market, you've got different dynamics, but where health systems can actually affect higher rates by virtue of their, their negotiating leverage, which is typically related to size, and we're even now seeing some of these regional and national systems trying to negotiate at regional levels, do they, do they focus on getting the best dollars for their doctors, or are they using their doctors as bargaining leverage for higher rates on the hospitals. You hear people talking about stories where the ho- you know the hospitals use physicians, they'll downplay those rates to get better rates on the hospital side. And I've had people tell me things like, well, you know, the hospital makes a lot more money, the growth is in outpatient services on the hospital side and in, even inpatient services, so why bother with physician practice? Whereas, the, as you say, the, the physician-owned groups that's their business, they're motivated to go out and get the best rates possible. Um, I hear people in the industry say, well, you know, health systems have better rates than physician groups on physician services. That's not necessarily true. Um, Sometimes the groups are the ones that have really gotten out and negotiated the best rates in the market because they're motivated to do that. This is interesting because they said we both have anecdotal. When you have talked to 20 people and you hear the same story 15 times, is that anecdote or is that observational? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, is that <laughs> well, a qual? Is that a qualitative? Points, it's right? a qualitative assessment. So I've heard similar things. I've even heard a story, at least in one case, which was, you know, what, uh, you know, what was important to the hospital to negotiate. Well, it turned out what was important was how the hospital administrator's bonus was determined, and it had to do with hospital <laughs> revenues. Right. So yeah, I mean, they well, went, yeah, they gave a lot well, of other things away. <laughs> I, I tell you, I I used to work for a hospital company, and uh, I've dealt with a lot of hospital operators. They are a hospital EBITDA focus. Yeah, that is correct. And the physician, the physician enterprise is just a cost of doing business. Yeah, them. and oftentimes so it's, it's on it's, yeah. it's on a separate set of books, so you can run the and everybody knows you lose money on the physician group. So if you lose a little more, but you make it up in a personal way, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, um, and that's and, and there becomes the regulatory challenge. Yeah. 
because it, it, it begs the question, why would all these other owner operators of physician practices, I mean, private equity is not going to do that. Physician owners are not going to do that. Um, it's not clear what Optum's going to do and some of the payers that have bought into doctor practices. Why do these other owners, you know, focus on profitability, but yet hospitals don't? And that's a that's an argument that's been used. If you look at the case history, uh, it was used in the Toomey case. By the way, people don't know that that issue came up in the Toomey case, um, and and even Toomey in the second trial put an expert up who said who said basically what we've talked about is that. You know, physician practices generally lose money. By the way, not all of them do. No. If you look at the MGMA data over the years, the top decile oh, yeah. don't, don't no. necessarily no. lose money. No. So there are people making money, but most, according to the MGMA data, in, you know, those, 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 uh, uh, that cohort of respondents lose money. And, you know, we hear that anecdotally, but my point is, Toomey put up that argument, it was unpersuasive. Yeah, uh, and we saw that in 2015 with the big sweep where practice losses was a big issue. Now, you know, kind of the, the the sources I have out there in the healthcare world tell me that you know the government's not so focused on that as they used to be. But wh- whatever, we know that the the track record there is that that raises a fundamental question of, you know, health system, why do you why do you not focus on this service line, and why is it okay for you to subsidize it? relative to your other service lines, but for referrals, I'll just say it, but for referrals, why would you do that? Now, that doesn't mean that's why they're doing it, but I'm just saying it raises that question, right? It, it has, at minimum, bad optics. Yep. I can't, I, I rarely can find a hospital that can give me what I would call a full cost absorption mm-hmm. P&L that tells them really what they're making when they push out all their costs. And it baffles me that you've got these multi-million, billion-dollar entities they can't really tell you what profit lines there are really profitable and what aren't. They can at a kind of gross margin level, but sometimes even those gross margin calculations, they get when I've gotten gross margin statements, aren't that accurate. Yeah. So the way they do physicians may not be that different than the way they do other parts of their business, yeah. in yeah. my experience, yeah. again, anecdotally. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. How can a physician practice cost account? I have my ideas in that, but I think that's beyond the scope of today. Uh, okay, <laughs> sure. I, I want to before we wrap up, I want to talk one more element because we spent a whole time talking on changes of revenue. There's another element, and that's cost, because I'm looking at mm-hmm. the data that a physician-owned practice, oh, the traditional measure of overhead of total operating cost as a percentage of total medical revenue, in a physician-owned multi-specialty group, it's 61.5 percent. In a hospital system, it's 65.5%. So here we are. We already talked about why the practice has less revenue, but they also have higher overhead. Again, adding to that potential operating loss. Do you have thoughts on the overhead change? I'll give you some of my observations once you have a chance. Let me throw out an element. Maybe we can talk revenue and cost and then talk about cost too. The cost of a lot of hospital-related services are often buried in the practice by virtue of the fact that the employed physicians may be providing medical director services, hospital ED and, and unassigned inpatient call coverage services, and even in some cases, co- they're doing clinical co-management services. The compensation for that is often paid out in the physician's paycheck. But you often don't see the health system 
crediting the practice with a with you know intercompany revenue for the value of those services. So the comp cost is there, but you don't see it up in the revenue line. So that's one yeah. one thing we can look at. But you're you're right about overhead. My experience with overhead is oftentimes smaller position groups may not have the same pay grades, the same type of benefits and the like, uh, and the same compliance costs. They don't have maybe the same level of HR support. You can go through all these sort of corporate functions. They don't have the big machine, if you will, that a health system does. And that big machine comes with a higher price. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one factor, I think, that, that, that plays into it. Um, I think some of it is just hospital, the way hospitals try to allocate out their overhead. And this gets back to the cost accounting question on the hospital side, not, not just the physician side, but the hospital side. How in the world are they throwing out or, or allocating out, I should say, all of these you know, corporate and overhead costs from their central office? Sometimes, too, the hospitals try to piggyback physician operations onto the hospital operations, and those may not be scaled properly relative to, to a physician practice, so they're higher. So that, that, as you say, as the data show, that can be a factor. I, I still think, I'd still say this is an area of practice uh, a health system needs to delve into with regards to their costs, because you know, because sometimes their costs are higher because they're just inefficient. Well, sometimes health systems have higher costs because they don't make hard decisions. They're in too many locations. They have too many staff. Sometimes, they're, you know, to be honest, anecdotally, I've, I, you know, they'll placate physicians. Well, Dr. So-and-so demands that they have so much staff, or they, they want their own office. They don't want to be in an office with the other dogs. And so you run into these situations where, in a private practice, where the dollar going into the you know physician's pocket is directly related to their decisions about staffing and space and the like, they, they behave differently. You know, I, I think it's a whole mixture of things, and, and you, you can't you can speak in terms of here's possibilities and, and, and generalities, but when you're looking at a specific practice, I think they have to do the hard work of asking, are we economically efficient in all areas? I, I think and, you, and, you know, is the hospital dumping costs on us? Yeah. You know, you're making a very good point, and that is the importance of any organization to look at themselves first. Uh, comparative insight or information can be helpful, but they need to look at their own organization. Uh, I can think offhand a couple of reasons that uh, that occur and why hospital systems have higher overhead. Uh, one is oftentimes they have union employees because this, the, mm -hmm. the, you know because mm -hmm. their inpatient employees uh, are unionized. Therefore, their employees for the doctors are also unionized. And even if not, they have a right. common pay scale that is oftentimes established right. for the institution, for the whole health system. Right. So you, they're now right. paying more for the employees in the doctor's office than a private practice would. So that you see that. I think there's another factor. I, had, uh, I have a very good friend who's a general surgeon who moved from being a private practice in a small surgical practice to being part of a larger health system. And that larger health system has an image. And that image says the depth of the carpet in the waiting room. The, you know, the, the newness of the magazines, <laughs> you know, the fact, right. that, the fact right. that, the, that the doors are all solid wood, you know, the fact that it's a beautiful location and it's easy to get to, whereas this private practice, the floor, the carpet was a little thinner, the doors were hollow, but, you know, their overhead was less because 
this doctor paid his own overhead. <laughs> so I think there's a there's an image right. issue for many health systems that it just increased their cost because they're trying to maintain a corporate image for the health system as a whole that, in, that migrates down to the doctor's offices. So, you know, we've addressed a lot of issues that says, you know, that mm-hmm. health, health, that doctors in private practice operate essentially at a break-even level, whereas the doctors in health systems run an operational loss. My last question is when I pose at the beginning, of this operational loss, how much of you think of it is real? In other words, you know, that is, uh, a, a, a controllable cost that could be addressed versus transfer of revenues or increased costs that are, are being allocated to the practice that are not actual true losses to the health system. What are your thoughts? Well, boy, that's a big question. Um, I believe a lot of these losses are, are in fact, uh, real. Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't talked about, Dave, is the propensity of health systems to pay off of survey data as opposed to paying off of what's in the local market for comp, what doctors in their local community are paying, uh, and a and a tendency to say we got to pay every doctor the median comp of work over you or, uh, or something like that, when that compensation level may not be sustainable in that market to begin with. Uh, people forget the median is the midpoint. So that's that's another fact we haven't talked about, but I would say that's a real that's a real loss driver. You know, the, the cost accounting related to the ancillaries, one could argue, well, that's not a real loss when you look at the health system on an enterprise level. Uh, in fact, they're probably making more money because they got to bill at a higher rate for a lot of those ancillaries. I think that, I don't know that we can make a blanket global statement. I get back to, I think the way to approach this issue uh, is always facts and circumstances. Let's go take the specific health system and its specific practices and let's go dig into what they're doing and let's really find out what's going on. And um, I, I guess, you know, my answer is always, well, it depends. It, it, you've, got to do the, you've got to do the detailed hard work of analyzing what's going on. And you may find some of it isn't real. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I advocated in one of the articles was fix the things you can. If you're not crediting your physicians on an intercompany level with the value of the hospital call coverage they're providing and the hospital medical directorships and such, you want to do that because you shouldn't be having the comp sitting over in the physician practice side and not hitting the hospital's cost for those direct hospital services, meaning, you know, ED call coverage and medical directorships, co-management and like. Fix what you can. And I, I think one of the problems with the health systems is they don't. They don't sit down and say, let's sort this out fix the things we can, uh, you know, be able to quantify what's left over. Um, I, you know, my, my thing is health systems get in there and do the work and figure out why you're losing money and be able to tell your boards, for example, why you're losing money in your physician enterprise. If the feds show up, you can tell the feds, here's why we're losing money. And if you, you've done the work, you can understand what's going on with your practices um, as opposed to just people kind of speculating over what's happening and, and not really understanding what's going on in their market with their dogs. I, you know what, I think that's perhaps some of the best comment that you have is that, yes, we can look in general at the data overall and understand what some of the industry trends are, but when it comes to right. a specific organization, you need to look at that organization specifically and look at what is happening there, what costs are controllable, 
what revenue opportunities do they have, and right. the, the financial operating loss or financial gain is going to be the result of those policies that the that the organization has put in place. I think very good comment. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And by the way, Dave, I love all, all the. This is not to, to downplay the, all the global industry trending that we can do with the MGMA data. This stuff really helps us think about the possibilities at the macro level. We just have to go down into the micro level and apply that analysis to the specific organization. I, I agree. Uh, Timothy, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a great discussion. I've enjoyed talking about it. I, I hope you have as well. Uh, any final thoughts? No, just dig into the numbers. I'm a big believer in digging into stuff. So go, <laughs> go dig into it and figure it out, solve the problem. But I've enjoyed this, Dave. Thank you so much for asking, inviting me to, yeah. to be here. It's been a great conversation. And you know, keep on, Dave, publishing those articles and doing your data analyses because okay. they benefit the industry. Well, I thank you very much for the compliment. And uh, we'll talk again some other time, maybe cost accounting. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Thanks. <laughs>